0: Lord, we just come before you we thank you for this evening we ask that you guide and lead us as we look at your word we ask that you will help us to understand what you would have us see and understand and we just thank you for each person that's here if anybody's on their way we ask you to bring them safely and give us a wonderful night in your son's name amen Amen. Matthew chapter 4 starting at verse 12 now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison he departed into Galilee And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Copernicum, which is upon the sea coast of the borders of Zebulun and Nephilim, that it might be fulfilled, which the prophet Isaiah said, the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephilim, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in the darkness saw a great light, and to them which sat in the region, in the shadow of the dearth light is sprung up. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, we're going to look at this, this section. We have been talking, we talked about Jesus in uh, his temptations, and the last temptation had him on in a high place where he could see all the, all the world. And from that high place, he heard, or came about, did his work, and then he heard that John the Baptist was cast into prison. Now we read other places that John is going to be in prison. He is going to die in this prison that he's been sent to and be beheaded. And the reason he was brought into prison was because he dared to speak against Herod and and his marriage and saying that, Herod, you don't deserve taking your brother's wife as your wife. And she did not appreciate that and arranged for him to be put into prison and, and have his head taken from him and that's, we read in that story, and John, the one who's been preaching in the wilderness, repent. The one that baptized Jesus was cast into prison, and then Jesus departed into Galilee, and if you know where Galilee is, it's in the northern part of Israel, up by the Sea of Galilee, and he's in that region, and he leaves to go to Nazareth, or he leaves Nazareth, and he goes and dwells in Copernicum, which Copernicum's in the northeast. He leaves Nazareth, goes northeast to go to Copernicum. He dwelt there, and I just want to show you, there's some key words here that tell us time is passing. And I've said this many times. How many times do we read the scriptures, and we kind of think, wow, look how exciting this life is. This happens, this happens, this happens, this happens. Well, in this one verse, he's leaving Galilee, and he's going into Copernicum, and it says that he dwells in Copernicum, which indicates there is some period of time being here. Now we don't, there's nothing in here that tells us what that period of time is, but there is time. And I just want to bring that out. That uh, we're looking at time is passed on here. And Copernicum is on the borders of Zebulun and Nephilim, which is on the again the northeast part of Israel. And he said that he did this so that it might be fulfilled what the prophet Isaiah said. And he's going to quote Isaiah 9.1 that out of you, Nephilim and Zebulun has, come, has shown a great light. And so this is again, remember I've said over and over, Matthew is going to quote Old Testament scripture a lot. Like a state. Galilee is a area just in the, yeah, I guess you would say state. Yeah, it's a region. It's a region off of Galilee. Yeah, there's a Sea of Galilee and Gal- the Gal- Galilean region. So we might call it a state. It's, it, doesn't, it doesn't have quite that official. Yeah, it doesn't have that official of a capacity. It's a region in the, in the north, north part of Israel. And it says here, you know, this was all done. He moved and lived in there so that he could fulfill the prophecy. And now we think about this: he got the fulfilled prophecies that are happening all over the place. A virgin gives birth in Bethlehem, and he moves from Bethlehem to Egypt because Herod is going to kill, which fulfilled a prophecy that out of Egypt I have called my son. Then he ends up living in Nazareth because he was said it would be he would be called a Nazarene, and. We've mentioned before that he was called a Nazarene, not a Nazarite, because a lot of people mix those terms up, and a Nazarite is a vow that Jewish people would take to, for obeying God, and they would let their hair grow long, and they wouldn't, wouldn't consume wine or grapes or anything, and then at the end of their vow, they would get their hair cut off, offer their sacrifice, and, and in their vow. So there's a lot of people who start thinking he was a Nazarite, and that is a different term altogether, so he goes to Nazareth so that he could fulfill that portion of it. Now he's moving to uh, Nephilim and Zephilim so that he could fulfill the prophecy that a light would come out of that region to, to minister. This is something that when people of the Old Testament were reading through their scriptures, they had a hard time understanding how he could be, Beth, be from Bethlehem and yet be a Nazarene and come out of Egypt and come out of uh, Nephilim and Zebulun, they they all knew that those were Messianic prophecies, but they didn't understand how they were going to be fulfilled by one person. Well, he moved around a little bit. Now, this is at a time when people did not move very often. Uh, Not so long ago, even in America, people did not move unless they were crossing the country to go to a whole other state. There were generations of families that lived in the same town. Uh, I lived in Maine for a while and it was amazing to me how many people in Maine had never been more than 25 miles from their hometown. Uh, and I think about that, you know, you watch Andy Griffin and they talk about Mount Pilate, you know, we're going to go to the big town of Mount Pilate across the mountain, which wasn't really that big a town, but uh, that was the mentality I heard in, in Maine, you know, we're this little tiny burg and we're going to go to the big, t- big city <laughs> that had 300 people in it, you know. It's, and, Well, it's, that's what I'm saying. It's not very long ago that people never, never left their their hometown. You had everything you needed there. The church was there. Your food was there. The, the you could go hunting. You, you know, everything you needed was in your town. You didn't have to go anywhere. And <clears throat> even in the west, even in the west, after people moved to the west, it happened. You you lived on your ranch and. You know, the furthest you went was to where the nearest town was to go to the general store to buy things that you couldn't grow, grow on the ranch or make on the ranch. And that was your big adventure, to go to the, <laughs> to go to the next town over. No matter how big it was, that was your, your huge adventure. So in Jesus' day, this was a mentality. You lived and you grew up, you stayed in your town, and Jesus is moving all over the place to, and in the process, fulfilling Messianic prophecies. And again, the, the original, they would look at it and say, well, we don't understand. How, he c- how can he be all these things? Well, he's fulfilling it. And this is why uh, Matthew is telling us, this fulfilled this prophecy. This fulfilled this prophecy. And uh, so they we're looking at this. And it says, the people which sat in darkness saw a great light. And to them which sat in the region in the shadow of death, light is sprung up. And then it says, from that time, Jesus began to preach. So he began his preaching in that land. And preaching is to tell forth the good news or to bring light. And they saw a great light. He was bringing a gospel that they didn't really understand. And this is something John the Baptist started with, repent. Now, repentance is not unknown in the Old Testament, but it is also not the normal message to Jews. Jews usually would tell other nations to repent. Repent. Because Jews had this idea, we're God's chosen people we're we're already there, and this is why Jesus is going to hammer on the scribes and Pharisees so much and He's going to say, you know just because you're a child of you know of Abraham doesn't mean that you're all taken in, that it had to be a circumcision of the heart, not just the flesh that your parents did to you, so you, after, you were in the what's that? So they're tribes of Israel. Yeah. they were sons of Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're not the they're not the best known of the tribes. Yeah. You know, most, people, you know, most people will know Judah because that's where Jesus is from. Uh, they might understand Benjamin because of uh, Saul. And Joseph, was in, but Joseph ends up with a double portion because both of his sons become tribes of Israel because Jacob said that those first two sons belong to him. And so Manasseh and Ephraim are Jacob, uh, Joseph's sons who Jacob said belonged to him. And so Joseph gets a double portion of the tribes and Levi loses his inheritance as we've talked about in Deuteronomy. The Levites become the servants of God, and they get cities all over the, all over Israel. But they don't have land that belongs to them. What's that? It's in the northern part. There's a lot of Gentiles all over that part, and Nebu and Zebulim are in a region called the, uh, which we'll learn later, the Decapolis, which means ten cities. And it is Jewish, but it really has a very strong Greek influence and a lot of Gentiles live there. That's why when Jesus goes there and he casts out the the demons that call themselves Legion and they go, cast us in the pigs. Well, pigs that we know are something the Jews don't raise. So he's in an area that is very much influenced by by Gentiles. And this is the area that he's living in right now, that he's dwelling in at this moment, is that area of Decalopolis, uh, Nephilim, zebulun and very much Gentile. So, in essence, his first ministry is preaching to a very Gentile audience in that area. Now, he would be talking mostly to the Jews, but there would have been a lot of Gentiles, and that's why he says they're in a great darkness. The people who lived in darkness have seen a great light, because the Jews that are living there are kind of what we would say in. in In Christian terms, they're backslidden. They're not. They're not really following after everything. I'm sure they're still following the Sabbath and basically being kosher, but they're not really seeking after God. Influenced by Greeks, influenced by by a lot of things that have happened. But even to this day, the Jews have a lot of influence from the world, and many Jews do not believe in God. Do not believe in the in their Bible. And they may still practice Passover and all the holidays and, and all of that, but they really don't believe in the Word, and, and they're not reading the Word as much as they should to be really following God. And the sad thing is many Christians do the same thing, or people who at least name themselves to be Christian. They go to church on their Sunday morning, listen to some little homily about, about nice things, about you know, this, that, or the other thing, but not really what God says and then they go home and live the way they want for the rest of the week and they go back to church again the following Sunday listen to some really simple homily that doesn't have any you know basis in scriptures and usually they'll read a scripture and talk about everything but the scripture they read or even about God's word and then they'll go home and start this all over again this is the way the Jews at this time are for the most part living not all of them because they you know there are some that are still following God but many of them Are not doing that and even to this day but the sad thing is we're watching the Christian church try to follow the same suit where they will allow sinners to be in there without saying that what they're doing is sin that Jesus isn't important most of them don't even believe that there is a heaven or a hell that's just with this world is all there is and this is something that we need to really look at in our life and saying are we truly believing God's Word uh, I was watching the movie Heaven is Heaven is Real about the little boy who went to heaven and everything, and I really got irritated by the movie because his pastor, his father's a pastor, that according to the movie, who didn't even believe that heaven was real. He was talking all about the power of God and everything, but he really didn't believe in heaven. So when his son starts talking about heaven, it's freaking him out because he's trying to figure out whether he believes his son or not. Yeah, but they have to have some and it's a possibility. I have, to, I have to do research. I just started watching the movie and it irritated me and I've got to, I've got to go and do some research on it. But just the right well, I already know many, Christian, many stories have strange things added to them. They're, they're good stories and they add to them. And that's sad because they ruin the validity of their story when they do that. But I do know that there are many Christians who don't believe in spiritual things. They don't believe, they really don't believe in God, they don't really don't believe in heaven, they really don't believe in hell, they really don't believe that God's word means anything. Which makes me wonder well why do you take the title Christian? If nothing about Christianity is real to you, why do you claim to be a Christian? And yet they do. And there are many people like that. And it makes me wonder sometimes about how many Christians there are in America that are really Christians Do they really, truly believe in God's word? Do they really, truly believe that God judges the sin? Do they really believe in heaven and hell? And by the way they live, the answers are no. And this is something we've got to be careful of. God has a standard for us. And and Jesus is preaching at the very beginning to the Gentile, an area full of Gentiles. And his message is repent. He's continuing the same message of John the Baptist, repent. Turn from your sin, turn away from your sin to God. And that's what repentance is. It's to turn away and say, God, I agree that what you're saying is wrong, that what I'm doing is wrong. I turn away from it and I turn back to you. Very important for us to, to understand repentance. We as Christians need to repent of our sins, not for salvation's purpose, but just for that fellowship purpose. Because when we're walking in sin, we don't want to have anything to do with God and his people. And it's true. I've seen it over and over again. When we're sinning, we're afraid that our sin will be exposed and we'll be embarrassed. So we don't want to be around God or his people. And Jesus said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is kind of an interesting term. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. What is that? It is Jesus bringing in the relationship with God. We are in that kingdom right now, as far as we, if we're a Christian, because eternal life does not, is not something that starts in the future. And we've got to understand that when we get saved, we have eternal life and it starts the moment that we get saved. We are given life and that life is eternal. And by definition, it can't be taken away from us. This is, this is one of the things that I look at when people say you can lose your salvation. I'm going, didn't Jesus say you had eternal life? And they'll go, yes. I go, how can you lose something that's eternal? If it's eternal then God, and you lose it, then God lied to you. It wasn't eternal. All right. We are given eternal life. Why is it eternal? Because he changes who we are. He clothes us in Christ's righteousness. And it is our By faith are you saved, through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Once we are become a Christian, we are a Christian. We are his child forever. Now, we can lose rewards. We can have all of that. Now, the other side of this is, when people say that, well, this person lost their salvation or gave it up, I'm going, well, were they ever saved in the first place? Or did they just... Were they the seed that sprung up and looked like it was going to grow and was consumed? The only seed, when the sower sows the seed, the parable of the sower of the seeds, some hit the ground and was immediately eaten by the birds. It didn't even have a chance to spring up. Some sprung up and the first sign of heat dried it up and it never, never grew. Others sprung up and the weeds choked it, and others grew and produced fruit. If we are truly saved, we will produce fruit. We will have a life that shows we're a Christian. We will have the conviction of the Spirit saying, you're doing wrong, correct your life. If you can sin without any conviction, then you really need to look at your life and say, am I saved? Do I have the Spirit in me convicting me because God says he's going to convict his children? And so we want to be able to understand salvation is very critical. Uh, and if we need to be able to really see that we're producing fruit, because I've said the scariest verse to me in the, in the entire Bible is that, that, that uh, Jesus will say, in that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't I? And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. And all the things they did were very great things. Cast out demons, visit, you know, visit the poor, you know, feed the poor, help the widows, help the, you know, go to the prisons. All the things that show, as James puts, true religion. And God's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. You were never attached to the vine. You never had life. You did lots of good things, but you did not have the life of God in you. We need to be able to look at our life and say, God, am I attached to that vine? Am I growing? Am I, am I producing fruit? Am I changing? And that is a very important thing for us to do. The whole idea of repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And when we spend time with him, when we enjoy being with the, with the body of Christ, when we're in the word of God, we, we have this hunger for the word of God. To me, those are great signs that somebody is a Christian. If they want to be in the church with God's people, they want to get into God's Word, they ask very good questions about the Word of God because they've been studying. I've always loved it when people give me questions because that tells me one great thing about it. They're studying. (laughs) They're reading. They're trying to find out information. And it's a critical area. Are we growing? Are we moving forward? Are we seeing things happen for God? Do I have this desire? Can I go weeks without ever reading my Bible? If you can go weeks without reading your Bible, weeks without going to church, you might want to look at your life and say, either I've got a lot of sin in my life that's keeping me from God, or I don't know Him. And we need to have these things showing up in our life. God is expecting us to grow. He doesn't want us to sit there and and die because of not looking to, not growing. And Jesus is preaching. And verse 18 says, And Jesus, walking by the sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he said unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. And going on from thence, he saw two brethren, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, in a ship with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and they immediately left their ship, and their father and followed him all right Jesus is leaving the the region of uh, Zebulun and Nephilim going down toward Galilee the the lake of Galilee wandering around walking walking by this by the the sea or the lake and he sees two men Simon and Andrew and he called, and they were fishing and he called them to follow him and he said that he would make them, follow, he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And I love this. And straightway left their nets and followed him. This is something when God calls us to do something, do we immediately go and do it? Or do we come up with excuses? God, I just don't know how many, you know, you think about this. He's called two fishermen and he says, follow me. There could be a whole lot of questions. Well, how are we going to live? Where are we going to live? How how are we going to have money? How are we going to get fed? Think about all the millions of questions these two men could have asked when he says, follow me. And they just leave their nets behind and follow him. This is kind of an interesting statement when you think about it. How many times do we not follow God when he says, do this. How many times do we not talk to somebody when we know that God wants us to talk to them and share the gospel and teach and help them. And yet, Peter and Andrew just get up and follow him and leave their, leave their business. Leave their business to follow this man now, how they know who he is, we don't know. His reputation gone on before him and they knew something about his reputation, that's one thing. But still, the faith it took to just leave their business behind and follow this, this man who's been teaching. And then, he, then we look at it. He goes a little further from then and he sees two brethren, the, uh, James and John, the children of Zebedee, and he calls them. They were mending nets and they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. So here they're leaving everything. They're leaving the family business behind and you note that they leave that ship and their father to follow him. They're abandoning family as far as as this goes to follow this man who just said, come follow me. You now it's bad enough. They're leaving their work. They're leaving their, their living. They're leaving their, and then they basically are leaving their family. How hard is that to leave family? It's not easy for a lot of people to leave family. Now, some people have bad families, and they're looking to get away from family as fast as possible. That's probably not happening here. Uh, you know, they're working with their dad, mending the nets. There doesn't seem, there, there's no indication that there's strife. There's no indication that there's problems in this, in this relationship. They just pick up and walk away. And this is at a time when the, especially the oldest children followed into their father's business because it was going to be their business afterwards. And both of these sons are fishermen with their father. And they all of a sudden just get up and walk away. And there doesn't seem to be this picture of Jesus trying to twist their arms and say, you know, you must follow me. He just goes and says, follow me. And they, and they go, get up and walk and do it. We need to be more like that in our Christian walk. Some people are pretty good at that. Some are very bad at it. But when Jesus says, do something, we need to listen and obey. Because this is his first four disciples. These, these four men are going to be the first four disciples, and they're following him just because he asked him to now with Peter and Andrew is a little more specific you know follow me and I will make you fishers of men now how much of his reputation has gone th- forward at this point Paul uh, uh, yeah Paul uh, Matthew's not telling us how much but they live in that area where he's been preaching so and the great light has been shown so they probably know a little bit about him how much of his reputation went how well known he was is kind of unknown at this point he is raising in, in authority. He has been preaching in that general area, a little further east of where they're at at this point. And it is quite possible they knew very well who he was. But Matthew's not saying they know who he is. But even with that, even knowing who he is and having a reputation, how easy is it to just get up and follow somebody and leave everything behind? Your business, your work, your money... This is still a time where if you don't have a job, you're going to, not going to just go out and buy food. And they're leaving, and it says specifically they left their nets behind, so they can't even go back and become fishermen or even fish for, for a living because they've left all the stuff behind. And this is a picture of a disciple turning their back on the old and turning to the new. And God is expecting us to do just that in our life turn from our old way of life, and turn to him. Now, that does not mean that every single person has to stop doing what they're doing to follow God. But in this case, he's calling very specifically, follow me. And we need to be aware of, are we doing what God wants us to do? And some people have a great trouble with that. And we never know what God... Some people God calls to stay in what they're doing so they can support those that are working for the church. And he says, stay in your business. And they're good businessmen, and they make the money to support the activities of the church. Some are called to be the teachers. Some are called to be pastors. Some are called to be the missionaries. And we need to be looking at what has God called you to do and do whatever he's called you to do with all your heart. The one thing I know, God has called me to be a pastor and I've known it for many years and he finally has opened the doors and I enjoy being a pastor. But at the same time, I have always been doing everything a pastor does for most of my life. I've taught, I've, I've preached, I've ministered, I've gone to the hospital. I've done all the things pastors do. But I knew that that's what God wanted me to do. There's not even a uh, doubt in my mind that that's what God has asked me to do. And most of us know what God has asked us to do. We may or may not be doing it. But sometimes God is just looking for simple things as well. And I, and I love that because I've shared over and over. Some people look at a pastor and say, well, that, that person's got all, these, all the gifts. Look at how much they're doing. Maybe, maybe not, because a pastor may not be using all of their gifts like they're supposed to and it could be a person in the church that they're doing just one or two little things nobody ever notices them and God's going to say this is the widow's mite they've put in everything that they've had into that part of their life and this is why we cannot look at ourselves and say well I'm not doing anything or I'm doing lots of things because we may not be doing we may be doing more than God has asked or less and it's very important that we don't do more than God has asked because if we stretch ourselves too thin, we're not going to do other parts of our jobs. And this is something especially young Christians get wrapped up in. They start trying to do everything in the church. They're, they're, they're singing in the choir, they're teaching Sunday school, they're, you know, they're trying to do a million jobs and they're not doing any of them well. And then you got the other side of the people that they don't do anything in the church at all. <laughs> and that's not that's not good anywhere either you need to find your balance because i truly believe that there's at least one job in the church for every single person who's part of that church now what that might be i'm not going to be even begin to that there's people who love to uh, i think of loretta when i do that for years she kept every weed off of this property until she got sick now that may not sound like a very big job but you know since she has not been able to do it, it's been hard to see this place with all the weeds in. And I know it bothers her. But that was her calling to keep the weeds off this church, along with other things she did. And some people are called you know, to just clean, clean the church or repair the church. Especially when you've got somebody like me that can't nail two boards together and have them stay in place. You know, I'm not the one to do repairing. Uh, it just doesn't work. But somebody who's called to that, and that's what God called them to do, that person's very important to the church and the the building. Yeah, then we shouldn't necessarily feel guilty that we're not good at evangelizing or, or preaching. Not necessarily. It may not be your primary, but especially for evangelism, we're all called to evangelize and take advantage of making disciples. Now, there are certain people that are much better at it than others. shared with you, I went to lunch one time with a true evangelist, not just somebody with the name evangelist. And it was kind of amazing. We stood in line, and he talked to everybody in line about Jesus. When we sat down, he talked to everybody around us. He talked to the busboy. He talked to the waitresses. He talked to anybody that came within 5 or 10 feet of the table. He talked to them about the gospel. And he wasn't obnoxious about it. He just was able to fit it into every conversation that he was talking about. And he would give a very quick gospel message to these people. And that is a gift. I am not that good at it. I can evangelize, but I'm not anywhere near that level of being able to just make it so smooth. And there are people that are gifted to that. That doesn't mean the rest of us are not to evangelize because we are told Go and make disciples. That's the great commission, and that's given to all Christians. And if we listen to the Holy Spirit, he will help us get the right answers. Now, the more we work at evangelism and the more we attempt to evangelize, the more we let the Holy Spirit work in us and the easier it will get. I don't ever say that you'll be the, the evangelist that, that can go talk to everybody, but you'll, you'll learn and you'll, the answers will become smoother and you'll have them understood no don't beat yourself up because you're not the evangelist you're not you're not the one that can talk to every single person in the world and and them the gospel message but the key to this is also are we giving them the gospel message okay and this is something we need to be ready to understand most people that I have talked to in 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 our day and age they think evangelism is just inviting somebody to church that's not evangelism that's not giving the gospel I mean it's better than doing nothing because hopefully they'll come to church and get evangelized but that's also not evangelism giving out our pens not necessarily evangelism it's good maybe they'll go to the website if you're giving out tracts you're coming closer to evangelizing because if you really want to engage somebody it would be more like what do you, what do you think will happen after you die you want something that actually brings back a conversation with them like I've said, I've taken many evangelism classes and I don't use any of them in the way that they were all designed. And we're going we're to be doing something for evangelism because I've had enough people asking me about it. I don't use any one format for evangelism, but because I've learned so many, there's answers for different things that happen. And the biggest thing about it is go out and do it. Once, once somebody says they believe in heaven, your next big question is, how do you believe you're going to get there? Most people will tell you all about how you got to do good things to get to heaven. And you listen to them. If you really want to engage somebody in an evangelistic conversation, you listen to them, and by listening to them, you gain the right for them to listen to you when you give them the gospel. And you don't sit there and try to tell them how bad it is or wrong they are. And you go, that's very interesting. Well, can, I, can I share with you what the Bible says about getting to heaven? And if you've honestly listened to them, they usually will let you tell you what the Bible actually says about getting to heaven. Just little little steps involved in it. Uh, we've, you know, we gave out that insert a couple weeks ago with the you know, three different ways to present the gospel. And so we just learned to do it. And the biggest thing is about it is practice. <laughs> practice. Get over your fears. It's just like anything else. When you first do something, it's scary. No matter what it is, it's, it's scary. We're scared of rejection. The number one fear that most people are actually afraid of when they, when they start sharing the gospel is, what if I get asked a question I don't know the answer to? That's what I've heard many times in evangelism classes. What if, or, or they'll give you some really weird, bizarre scenario. What if they say this? And, and usually the leader will go, well, I've been, te- I've been evangelizing for a long time and nobody's ever said anything close to that. It is like anything when you first do it, there's a fear. If anybody's ever done rappelling or rock climbing, that, you know, if you can remember the first time you did rappelling, where you're walking, even if it's just walking down the very first time when they just make you learn to depend on the rope, and you put your whole weight on the rope. It was kind of scary the first time I went, went down. We always end up with this idea that the first time is scary. The first time you do public speaking scares the daylights out of people. The number one fear of most people is public speaking, which was kind of funny because I've been in front of public all my life, to me, my my fear was one-on-one speaking for many years because I grew up, I was always the new kid and I was introverted and I didn't want to go, I I didn't want to talk to in- individuals. Put me in front of the crowd, it was no problem. <laughs> one-on-one was always more difficult. But the real point is anything that we do the first time, first few times is gonna be scary. But as you go on and learn how to do it and you get your practice in and you realize that everything you're afraid of is not as bad as it re- is not really that bad it becomes an easier thing to do for me things like auto mechanics and stuff I if I've never done it before if, worry have I done it right first time I did brakes on my own it was like did I get these things right because if they're not right <laughs> this car's not stopping but here Jesus is calling he's called four men to join his join his team and they just get up and, and leave I don't know if that amazes you as much as it does me, that they just get up and just walk away from what they're doing. Because I've seen so many people who would not walk away when God calls them. And so this is just something that really stands out to me. The faith that they had to just get up and follow him. Now, if they've already understood that he's the Messiah and everything, then I can understand that to some degree they're hoping for a position in the, in the new kingdom. He's been preaching repentance. he's repenting' preaching the kingdom of God. He hasn't even claimed to be Messiah yet, as far as we know at this point in time. and they and they just get up and and follow. And that to, that to me is just an amazing amazing thing. verse twenty three and Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all manner of sicknesses in all manner of diseases among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and and torments, and those which were possessed with devils, and those that were lunatics, and those that had palsy, and he healed them. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee and from Decalopolis and from Jerusalem, and from Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So we're looking at it. Right now he's got four disciples, and he's going all over Galilee teaching in their synagogues. So every Saturday he would go to the synagogue and teach. This is the way he started his ministry. The synagogue is basically equivalent to our thought of church. Most people couldn't go all the way to Jerusalem every day to go to the temple, so they started smaller groups. And, and usually what would happen in a synagogue is they'd read a scripture, they'd read from the, the Torah, a rabbi or their, whoever was the best learned man in their area would, would be the one who would just give them some kind of exposition of that scripture. They would sing a couple Psalms and then they would go home. And here Jesus is showing up as a teacher to teach In their synagogues. Can you imagine what it would be to have the one who wrote the book be actually teaching in your synagogue and come into the church and actually teach you what it really meant, what it was all about? And he's gaining fame and he's preaching the gospel, the gospel that God has come to them. Their sins are going to be forgiven. This is something that was not really understood by the Jewish people, that their sins were forgiven. They understood that they were covered. That's what Yom Yom Kippur is all about. They go to the Day of Atonement. They have their sacrifice. And the sins of that year have been covered. And they're able to leave knowing that God has covered the sins with blood. But to actually see sins forgiven was not so much what they understood. It's not that it wasn't taught, as we're seeing as we go through the Old Testament books. It wasn't that it wasn't taught that way. It was not a full understanding. They understood their sins were covered, and not truly totally forgiven. This is what this the mercy seat is all about. The blood of the lamb, the uh, the uh, lamb of atonement was brought into the holy of holies where God sat, and it was placed on the mercy seat. And we've taught taught you in the on the Wednesday studies that the mercy seat is called the seat of propitiation. And propitiation is a really big word, but what it really means is That the anger of God was satisfied by that blood. Jesus is the final lamb for atonement. And he took his blood to the heaven mercy seat and put his blood before the Father. And that bought our sin. All of God's wrath was placed on Jesus for our sin. And this is something that is just an amazing thought. God's wrath was placed on Jesus. And he took all the punishment that we deserve. Again, I've said this over and over God created man knowing that Jesus was going to have to take the wrath of, of the Father upon himself to redeem us. And yet he did it. I, that, that just buckles my mind that they, that they did that, that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit did this and planned this even before they created man. That, we, that they knew man was going to sin and that Jesus would, pay, would have to pay the price to redeem us. That is, to me, something that doesn't make any sense whatsoever, and yet that's what God decided to do. And here he's preaching that gospel, forgiveness to the people, and healing sicknesses. This is quite a, a big deal. Now we read all through scriptures how different, uh, different prophets did different healings with everybody but none of them seem to have a ministry based upon healing people. Elijah sends uh, Naaman and gets him healed from leprosy. We get the resurrection of the child by both Ezra uh, both Ezekiel, uh, Elisha and Elijah both (laughs) end up healing, uh, resurrecting somebody. There is healing seen through the scriptures but Jesus's ministry seems to be based on his power to heal. And that's what draws his crowds, lifting up the name of the Father. And it says he, he healed all manner of sicknesses and all manner of diseases among the people. Why is this important? Because sickness and disease comes from sin. There was no sickness, no disease until Adam and Eve sinned. As a matter of fact, there was not going to be death until they sinned. And their sin brought death into the world for everything. There was no death until that point in time. And then everything changed in all of creation. And death rules our planet now. Sickness rules the planet. And Jesus comes along and says, I've got power over sickness. And over and over again, he's going to show that he has power over death. He heals Lazarus. He heals uh, Jairus' daughter. There's a number of people that he brings to life just to prove that he is also the Lord of life. And not just this. And it says his fame spread went out throughout all Syria. Syria is in that northern just north of Israel. It is in this area of Galilee. It, it's just north, just north of there. So his his fame is spreading, and this is kind of an interesting statement, it's spreading beyond Israel. Okay, this is a land of Gentiles. Syria is Gentile land. It is not, it is not Israel's land, and his fame is going. And it's kind of interesting that he notes the first place that, that Matthew notes is that his fame is spreading amongst the Gentiles. <laughs> and we think about that how interesting this is the Jewish mentality is that the Gentiles are worthless Okay, Gentiles are dogs they're not they're not even worth considering and yet Matthew's first place that he says his fame is is gaining is in the Gentile land and then they brought to them all the sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments And then he starts naming a few of those those who are possessed with devils is the first one he talks about. And we're going to read all through this time where the devils know who he is. All right. And they're going to start saying, you know, what have we to do with you? You know, you righteous one, you holy one, you, you know, and he keeps silencing them because it wasn't time for his title to be revealed. Now, he's going to claim to be God all through this, the, uh, the, the Gospels. And anytime you re- meet somebody who tells you that he never claimed to be God, they haven't read the scriptures. Because when he said, before Abraham was, I am, the people picked up stones to stone him because they knew that he had committed what they considered blasphemy. Because if he wasn't God, he had just, he had just made himself equal to God. And that's what he said, and they got ready to stone him because he had said, I am God, very clearly. And he says this over many different places. There's all, several places where he makes statements that when you really look carefully at him, they are, he is saying, I am God. Not, he didn't come out and say, I am God, but in the language he used, they knew what he meant. When you see that they're picking up stones to stone him, you know that he has just claimed to be God. And so they bring people possessed with devils. He's casting out demons. And it's kind of interesting in our day and age how many people don't believe that people can be possessed with devils. And they can be possessed. I truly believe that a lot of our psychological ailments have elements of demon possession in them. Not all of them, not every one of them, but many of them have elements of demon possession in them. We, in our scientific age, just can't allow for demonic possessions. But they were brought to him. And those that were lunatic, that literally means moonstruck, probably epileptic seizures. But there was a period of time where they believed that when the moon, especially if it was full moon, that people would go crazier. And the he, Greek word here literally means moonstruck, just what, which is what lunatic means. Now, this is a totally different place. Epileptic Caesars probably aren't demons in most cases. In most cases. Because that has actual physical, yeah. neurological problems. Um, most of these people that with multiple personalities probably are demonic. Because you see these different people are opening themselves up to the demonic world. They're emptying their mind and trying to not be in control, which opens themselves up to the demonic world. There's lots of things out there that really are hard to understand uh, why they do, and yet they're doing it. Most of the Eastern mysticism religions involve meditating to the point where you empty your mind of all thoughts. And as soon as you empty your mind of all thoughts, you're inviting demons to come in. It's not a place to go. I have reservations about hypnosis because it's the same thing. Drop all of your rational thought and have somebody plant seeds of thoughts into your head. Well, while it's empty, there's other things that are getting planted in your head. I'm not saying it doesn't work. I'm not saying it's totally bad, but I have reservations about it for just those same reasons. If you're meditating according to the word of God, meditating on it is meditating on his word and thinking about his word. It's not the Eastern way of meditating where you empty your mind of all thoughts and wait for some spirit to speak to you because your mind is empty. Biblical meditation is to meditate on your, on God's word. And we just keep thinking about the same verse over and over again. God help me understand this verse and and the bits and pieces or these, these verses. The idea of emptying your mind or concentrating on, on your belly button that they want you to meditate on and just emptying your mind of all thoughts is a very dangerous place to be. Hypnosis is that same mentality. I worry about it. I, I, I can't prove that statement, but I have reservations about it and worry about it because it's too close to the Eastern mysticism type of thing. Empty your mind of all thoughts and will somebody will fill it for you. <laughs> and in this case, you're actually letting somebody fill it to you. And that's kind of a scary thought to me. But Jesus healed these people. He healed those that had palsy, which was a disease where your nerves just kind of relax and you end up losing control of your body. It's very close to epilepsy as well. Your, your nerves just basically stop functioning. And then he said he healed them. And there followed him a great multitude of people. Healings always draw a great crowd. I and mean, if you announce that we're going to have a healing service in a church, you'll get a crowd in your church all looking for these miracles. And that's not saying that God doesn't heal. God still heals. I've prayed for many people in my lifetime that have gotten healed. I've prayed when somebody's had an asthma attack and, and watched them watch their asthma attack stop. Now, that doesn't mean that every single time I've prayed they've gotten healed. I do not claim to have the gift of healing, but I have prayed for a lot of people who have gotten healed. I've seen great miracles that God does in healing. I expect God to heal when I pray. Because I'd love to see his power. But it's God who does the healing. It's not me. It's not not the different individuals. God does the healing. And we just need to keep in mind it's him. And these crowds came to him from Galilee, from Decalopolis, which we already said was that region where he was living. And then it says, and from Jerusalem, from Judea, and beyond Jordan. Now, we've got to remember, Jerusalem and Jerusalem, and Judea are a pretty fair distance from Northern Galilee where he's at. And it's, going to, it, it's days worth of walking, so his fame is, at this point, yes, his fame is moving out. Now what is this that they're really having the fame of? Probably the fact that he's healing people. Not necessarily that he's this great teacher or anything, but go see this man and you'll get healed, is what is going on. And that kind of news is going to spread. And he's going to draw a crowd. And this crowd is going to follow him for the rest of his ministry. He's going to have lots and lots of people following him. We know that there's about 500 that were constantly with him and thousands that were with him at any one time. And so we see his fame and people coming to him from all over the place because this is a healer. And this is something they're not used to seeing. You know, like I said, some of the prophets had healings, but that wasn't their main Ministry, and if somebody's claiming to be the healer, then they, you're not really wanting to be at that place. If if God isn't getting the glory, you may be getting healed, but not from the right power, because everything that is done for God lifts Him up. This is a problem I have with some people, some men who teach the the Word of God. They start getting to think it's that it's them doing all this great thing. No, it's the Spirit speaking through them. where you're not getting the right message. And I've seen many people who travel around this country and some of them give some very good messages, but they give the same message over and over. It's just like any traveling merchant who gives you the same spiel to every single person they meet and it that kind of scares me, it bothers me. That you go to this person, the first time you hear it it's great because it's a great message. But the second and third time you hear it it's like, didn't I just hear that in the last place I saw you? God's not giving you anything new to preach. And this is why we need to be looking as a teacher. We look and we find what is new. What is God's message for the people today? Not what did I teach them last year, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. There's a lot of pastors I know. They have whole drawers full of messages. And they go and they recycle them. Some have only a three-year recycle. Some have five or ten years. My notes don't do me a bit of good to recycle in the first place, but they get thrown away <laughs> because when I get ready to teach something, I want it to be new and fresh. I don't want to—I don't want to eat food that's five days old, a year old. I would never eat any food in the refrigerator that's been there for a year, <laughs> unless it's in a sealed container that doesn't have any have anything in it it has to be frozen or totally you know sealed and canned but other than that i'm not going to eat anything in the refrigerator now i'm going to eat let's see that that was we had that for dinner eight years ago and it's in the refrigerator still no we're not doing that and i don't want that to be the way we are with the word of god god says his mercies are new every morning which is why we get into the word of god we study the word of god we read the word of god and we keep reading it over and over again and I've shared with everybody, I encourage everybody, read the Bible every, through every year. Amazing to me that I've tried to do that every year for, for over 30 years, almost 40 years. And it's always new. When I say this, I literally have said this to God, God, when did you put this verse in here? I've never seen it before. Now, I know that that verse has always been there. But I hope you understand what I'm saying. You come across this verse, and you know you've read the book before, you know you've read the chapter before, and all of a sudden something jumps off the page because it's new. God has made it fresh, and He says, I want you to pay attention to this verse today. And it like jumps off the page, and, and I've literally asked God, you know, God, why did you put that verse in there? I've never seen that before. And I'm joking with Him because I know that it's been there, but at the same time, I'm also serious. God, I've never noticed this, and now you're making it jump off the page. We need to understand his word is new. It is fresh. If we get to the place where we're just reading his word to get through the reading and not pay attention, not looking for what he has for us that day, we've got a little bit of a problem. We need to be able to get in and see what he wants us to see. And understand that there are spiritual things in this world Especially in our day when the, when the world wants to explain everything away to, you know, and say, well, it's not supernatural, it's this, that, or the other thing. And we'll hear that all the time. There is no such thing as sin, it's all sicknesses. There's no such thing as demon possessions, it's, you know, it's, they just didn't understand. There's no, no such thing as miracles, it's just that you don't understand. And I would almost agree with him, God understands how to make things work. From God's point of view there probably aren't any miracles, it's just Him touching the right place and making things happen. But from our point of view we don't understand it, it's a miracle. And even if you could prove to me that it wasn't a miracle, if it's, it's a miracle to me that it happened when it happened, <laughs> okay? <clears throat> if, if God can use a natural means to make it happen, it's still a miracle that it happened at the moment that it was prayed for and asked for. So. It's not a problem to me to look and say, God, you have done something. You have touched it at the right moment. And so we look at this and we say, God, you are wonderful. You are magnificent and you have a plan. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you and ask you to be with us. We ask that you help us to to know what it is you want us to do and to go forward into that plan, to go forward without second thoughts, without hesitation. And we just thank you for all that you care and you've done for us. In your son's precious name, amen.